Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would just read a patron email here and respond to some of their questions. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. This email is from patron CW, who in a previous email I understood to be a social worker. And so the first question CW has is, do you have any comments about the therapeutic frame and boundary violations? Yes, uh, but you're going to have to be more specific than that because I'm not, uh, I mean, I could ramble about the therapeutic frame, but if you had a particular question, patron CW, I'd, I'd gladly field that because there's so many different things one could say about the therapeutic frame. In general, what I will say is that boundary violations are very subtle, and in my experience, most novice therapists have a very vague understanding of what even constitutes a boundary violation and how to deal with it. So um, one of the things that I will do with my supervisees is whenever we discuss boundary issues with clients, um, we I will say, well, what's the negative potential negative consequence of crossing that boundary? Um, for instance, last week I was talking with a group of supervisees and someone was talking about their own therapist. They were actually talking about their own therapist. A, a supervisee was saying that, uh, she was saying, my, my, my therapist invited me to a 4th of July party. And so, you, you know, and immediately we all kind of went, oh boy, you know, that's, that's not good. So I, as an exercise said, okay, well, just because it's it's not normal behavior for a therapist to invite their client to a Fourth of July party doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. But let's let's work our way through this. What what are the reasonable negative consequences, the the potential risks that a therapist takes when they cross that boundary by inviting their client to one of their parties? And we walked ourselves through that. The client, uh, the supervisee who we were talking to. Uh, she, if she goes to this party, she might see her therapist drunk, or she might see her therapist in a compromised uh, position, and that will give her a negative idea of her therapist and will uh, negatively affect treatment. This, um, so, you know, that's just one of the ideas that we threw out there, and that's one of the reasons why you don't invite your clients to parties because it 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 will it might harm the client and or it might harm the treatment and so and that's that's why it's unethical to do, to do those kinds of things um, and not a good idea having said that there are plenty of therapists that will invite their clients to parties and they don't lose their license over it so it there's a lot of flexibility there in our field and a lot of different ideas and just because something isn't normally done doesn't mean that there's a rule about not doing it. And so there's, uh, when it comes to the therapeutic pr frame, as a patron CW puts it, and, and boundary violations, that's what I'll say in general. All right, P patron CW also asks, do you have any comments about how therapists learn therapy through how their own personal therapy progresses? Yeah, so most therapists go to therapy themselves and me included. And absolutely, I've, I've learned so much about how to be a therapist by going to therapists myself, not only just by some of the bad therapists that I've been to 
and and learned what not to do. But also, obviously, from from good therapists that I've really benefited from. And when you experience that on the other side, you realize, oh, that really helped me. I'm going to try to do more of that as a therapist myself. So absolutely, being in therapy uh, absolutely helps out a lot. And there are some therapists that don't go to therapy. We require it in our program. But there, there, I know many therapists that have never been to therapy themselves. And you just have to wonder about people like that. But, you know, I think there's some evidence saying that some people can be, can be just as effective uh, without having ever been to therapy themselves. But anyway. Um, patron CW goes on to say, I wanted to ask you about adoption. Have you ever done a podcast about adoption? I do not believe I have. Specifically, issues with interracial adoption. I don't think so. I don't think I've done a podcast on that. I think that given your knowledge of racism and microaggressions, as well as attachment theory, I would love to see how you could think about how these two topics intersect. The complexity of this topic really boggles my mind. I am a mixed-race adoptee myself, and I was adopted at birth from a mom who was 19 at the time and is an adoptee herself. So I was born into a white family who adopted me. Uh, I, w- I was, uh, well, I, I think patron CW means I was adopted by a white family because patron CW is not white uh, themselves. And so it was, and the, apparently the patron CW goes on to say that they, uh, in their family, they didn't talk about race at all, or at least sufficiently. And so patron CW felt very confused about the, about race and, and um, at a certain age realized, wait, I, I'm a different race than my family. And I don't know how to think about that. And that uh, perhaps threatened the relationship and the attachment. So yeah, I, I could go on and on about this because early in my career, for whatever reason, I got a lot of referrals from Korean adoptees in the United States. And the majority of these Korean adoptees, these Korean biological children were adopted into white American families. And so I saw firsthand the various different uh, syndromes and effects of that. Uh, One being you always have to know when you were adopted if you were adopted at birth or, or soon after birth, then your attachment disruption will be very minor. Whereas if you're adopted at the age of two, then there will inevitably be an attachment injury because at six months, at 12 months, you're bonding to whoever is taking care of you. And if, if that's your biological parents or a nurse or, or somebody, then to just be ripped away from that person at the age of two and sent to this stranger's house who, you know, albeit a wonderful house, but you don't know these people and and you wish to, you want to go back. That sort of attachment injury will have a profound effect on one's personality later in life. And that's what I would end up seeing was I would end up treating these teenagers and these young adults who had a lot of behavioral problems and a lot of problems with, with empathy and a lot of problems with substance abuse due to, in my estimation, this early attachment disruption. Um, so attachment is, is absolutely something important to pay attention to in, in adoption. And it's really a tragedy 
in in adopting kids who are uh, a little older than newborns. Um, so the other thing I'll talk about as race here is that a lot of adoptees are have different color skin than their than their parents, and when uh, so I I also want to point out that you can be of a different race. You can be of the same, you can have the same color skin, but actually be considered a different race, right? So, you know, so there's all that. But anyway, growing up as an adoptee with a, with different color skin than your parents, then you're raised in a culture that sees the color of your skin as, as something very indicative of who you are as a human being. So you'll hear that, and, and Patron CW talks about this, you'll, you'll hear that when kids are young, they don't really know and they don't care. A lot of young, you know, five-year-olds, they don't notice or they don't care that their skin color is different. They don't care necessarily that they were even adopted. But as, as these adoptees enter our society as teenagers and start really thinking about their place in the racial social constructions, they start really wondering what's happening. And, and all teenagers go through a healthy phase of rebellion and a healthy phase of rejecting their parents and saying, you know, of individuating and saying, you know, I am me, I'm different than you. You're old and stuffy and, you know, you're a Republican. Well, I'm a Democrat or you eat meat and I'm a vegetarian. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that naturally happens when you're a teenager. And it's very complicated by the fact for adoptees when they look at their parents and say, you're white and I'm black or you're white and I'm, I'm Asian and black. And the uh, attachment is facilitated for children who look like their parents by the fact that they feel a biological connection. You know, when you're, when you're biologically connected, that ha- that carries with it a social construction, you know, imagine you you meet a long lost sibling. You know, one of your siblings was adopted to a different family early in life. You never met that sibling, and then thirty years later, you're you're reunited with that person. In all likelihood, you're going to feel a connection to that person, and there's really no actual connection other than biology and DNA, right? But uh, you're not actually in a relationship with that person, but you will likely feel connected to that person automatically because of the social construction that we have in our society around biology and around skin color and all that kind of stuff and lineage. And so when uh, you as a child look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am of a different race than my parents, that, that, threaten, that further threatens the development that teenagers uh, struggle with anyway. And so I would treat a lot of teenagers that would tell me, uh, you know, I hate my parents. Uh, and, uh, and so regardless of whether they were adoptees or not, I would treat a lot of teenagers who hated their, who would say they hated their parents. And for the kids who were adopted and of different race than their parents, they would say things like, I hate my parents and they're not my parents. These are not my parents. My real parents are somewhere else. And I reject these parents that have been taking care of me for the f- past 15 years because they bother me and they're, and they're not the real parents. And so, so adoptee being, you know, now having said that there are plenty of kids that are adopted that have no problems with teenage life and, and grow up, you know, without any incident. Uh, but there's often when, you know, you'll hear 
people, not everyone, but you'll hear people when they say, yeah, it was a little weird uh, growing up knowing that I was born in Korea and my white parents had no idea about anything Korean. We didn't even eat Korean food and my parents were actually kind of racist against Asians <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, race is extremely complicated. Uh, it's a very complicated topic in general. And, and, and imagine being an, an adoptee uh, of a different race than your parents. It, it would it would really complicate things, right? Having said that, there are plenty of different practices that that different families will utilize. And there's a fair, there's some research on this I won't go into, but what you'll hear some families do is from an early age, they'll try to integrate the, the adoptees, the child's culture, quote unquote, into their lives. For instance, I, I've known some families who say, you know, adopted a Korean child at birth. And from an early age, the the white Caucasian European American parents will try to integrate Korean culture into the family life. They might use Korean words or they might have Korean art in the house. They uh, might try to instill Korean pride in the, in the child by noting the history of Korea. And they might travel to Korea uh, as a family they might reach out to Koreans in the community to provide mentorship for that child. So those are all things that families will do and with, you know, good intention. I'm not exactly sure how well they work, honestly, because when, for instance, you're a, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, wow, I am Korean and my parents are white, you know, does, is that complex, is, does, is that complicated process mitigated by going to a Korean restaurant every once in a while and having, and having Korean art in the house. I'm guessing not. Right. And in my experience for families that did that, I don't know if it, if it worked all that well, you know, the, the, the problem is our society is completely fucked up when it comes to race. And Therefore, when you're an adopt, adoptee of, and you're in a different race family, I should say that there are black families that, that will adopt white kids too. It's not always white parents adopting people. So you can have different races uh, in, in, in many different configurations. You know, you might have an Asian family that, that adopts a white kid or a black kid or something. And so uh, our, our society is completely fucked up about race. And so when you have this curveball thrown at you at when, particularly when you're a teenager and you're just looking at yourself in the mirror and you're trying to figure all this out, it, it will naturally have some effect on you and often a negative effect. So, uh, I've talked with lots of parents about this and, and, you know, I say some kind of toned down version of that. And I just say, look, you, you can do all that you can to accommodate your child, but in the end, race is going to play a role in complicating things. And you just have to be there for them. The thing that I, I talk with parents a lot is don't worry necessarily about the right technique of parenting your child. Worry about your attachment and your attunement to that child because that, that's the foundation of everything. And so uh, it sounds to me like patron CW might have had parents that weren't exactly attuned and weren't exactly paying attention because patron CW is saying, you know, my parents never talked about racial differences, even though 
we had different races in our family. And so that is a bit of an indication, a red flag, if you will, of parents that weren't necessarily paying attention to their child because it would make sense that patron CW as a child would start asking questions. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that they were afraid of talking about racial differences and race. A lot of people just say, well, you know, we're all the same. Don't worry about race. And, and that's a wonderful, you know, ideal, but it's not the reality of our society. And it's very easy for white people to say, you know, that they, they don't think about race when all non-white people absolutely have to think about race because it's, it's constantly shoved in their face all the time. But anyway, so that's what I'll say about uh, interracial adoption. I'm just talking off the top of my head. It's not very articulate and I didn't utilize any research, but I hope that that answers your question, patron CW. If you have any thoughts on this, please email at contact at psychology in Seattle. Also, if you would like to please review us on iTunes and most importantly, become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. If you haven't already become a patron, please do so now because we really love having patrons. <laughs> it's, it's very wonderful to have like this small group of dedicated listeners that we communicate, including patron CW, because patrons get their emails read on the, on the podcast, uh, preferably. So, okay, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.